everyone. Gledelect neat hour. Happy New Year to you. This is Jules, your host of the All Things Iceland podcast. 2021 is here, and I hope it brings way more positive vibes in 2020. To kick off the new year, I'm sharing my interview with Andre Snyder Magnusson, an award-winning author, environmental activist, and director. He was on the show early on, so way back in the day, <laughs> and of course have links to that. I just, I, back then, I actually split his interview up into a few parts, and I'll have links to that. If you haven't had a chance to hear his episodes beforehand, you get a lot of insight there about Icelandic literary culture and, and things of that nature, and of course about him. And it's great to have him back because so much has happened in his life since we last spoke. One moment in particular, a viral moment, was when he and others had a funeral for a glacier here, for Ok Jokut. And Ok used to be a glacier, so unfortunately we can't call it Ok Jokut anymore, because Jokut means glacier. So Ok, Ok Fett, maybe, is what it's called now, <laughs> used to be a glacier, but due to climate change, the ice has melted from it and it has lost its glacier status. Andre Snyder wrote a letter to the future that was printed on a plaque and placed on Ok. He also recently did a TED Talk on Solhemajokut Glacier and released a new book titled On Time and Water. The book has not yet been released in the United States for those who are in the U.S. and might be looking for that on Amazon or wherever else. It is set to be released, I believe, in March. And in regards to this, I mean, his TED Talk, the Ork, uh Glacier Funeral, as well as On Time and Water, all of this has to do with his environmental activism and, of course, him being an author who can really put down words, and a poet as well. I have to mention that, and that's something that we talked about when I first interviewed him, that he really has an ability to captivate you with his words. And I will link to the TED Talk so you can check that out in the show notes. But just to give you a bit about the book on Time and Water, it's, quote, in taking a path to climate change through ancient myths about sacred cows stories of ancestors and relatives, and interviews with the Dalai Lama, Magnusson allows himself to be both personal and scientific. The result is an absorbing mixture of travel, history, science, and philosophy. End quote. This book is for sure captivating. And I think what Andre, in particular around the topic of environmental activism, does really well is that it's not this stiff book of facts. Like it, like mentioned in that quote about the book just now, he weaves together a lot of different resources and interesting either historical facts, but also fiction and folklore to bring you a story that really puts it out there for any individual to understand. You don't have to be a scientist. And even if you're not like fully sure about what's going on with the environment, I feel like a book like this would help to bring you up to speed in a way that's fascinating and informative. I'm a big fan of his book Love Star, a science fiction novel that takes place in Iceland. And I would not call myself a science fiction nerd by any means, but I do enjoy a story that mixes science, humor, and just the right amount of absurdity. Similar to Kurt Vonnegut, who is 
an author that I loved reading, and I still enjoy sometimes rereading his books. Andres Snide does a great job of adding all of those elements into his book. So I highly recommend Love Star to anybody, to most people, whenever they ask me about a book regarding Iceland that they might find interesting. If they don't give me a genre, I will say Love Star. Pick it up. I highly recommend it. And the great news on top of that is that I decided to do with this episode to kind of kick it off a New Year giveaway that is exclusive to my podcast listeners. And I'm giving away three different Andre Snyder books. So one person will win on Time and Water. And like I mentioned, it's not available yet in the U.S., so uh, you could get it early before everyone else. Another person will win a copy of Love Star. And the third person will win a copy of The Story of the Blue Planet, which the New York Times called, and I quote, a Seussian mix of wonder, wit, and gravitas, end quote. While the story of the Blue Planet can be seen as a children's book, it definitely appeals to adults as well. I think it's pretty cool how he just, how Andres Nide just seemingly jumps from one genre to the next. (laughs) So in terms of the giveaway, though, all you have to do to enter, I made it super simple, is to leave a review of the All Things Iceland podcast. And wherever that may be on, you know, whatever platform you're on, if it allows you to leave a review... And then once you leave the review, take a screenshot of it and then email it to me at jules at fromforeigntofamiliar.com. And of course, that email address will be in the show notes of this episode on allthingsison.com. My review page, which is linked in the show notes, makes it easy for you to leave a review if you're listening via Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Stitcher, and CastBox. So you can look for that link in the show notes. All you have to do is just click that. So simple to do. But of course, if you're using another platform that I didn't mention and it allows for reviews, please leave one there. If you have already left a review for the podcast, all you need to do is just take a screenshot of that review and send it to me and you'll be entered to win. I will run this contest until January 29th, 2021. And all of the books are great reads and great gifts to get. Lastly, if you're a member of the All Things Iceland Patreon community, and you leave a review, just screenshot it and send it to me. You will receive an additional ticket in the draw for the giveaway just for being part of the All Things Iceland Patreon community. For anyone who would like to join as a member of the All Things Iceland community on Patreon, that link is in the show notes. On top of the fact that they're getting an additional ticket, I give my Patreon members advance notice when I'm doing giveaways, special announcements, and things of that nature. And an Icelandic good luck to all of you is Gangi Thier Vel. Okay, now let's jump into the interview with Andre Snær. Þakka þér kærlegar fyrir að hlusta og góðu skemmtun. Andre Snær, welcome back to the All Things Iceland podcast. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be on your podcast. How are you doing? Very well, very well. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was more than a year ago. So we, I published the episode with you in May of 2019. Yeah. And a lot has happened with you since then, of course. Yeah. And yeah. I think it would be awesome to talk about kind of some of the things that have happened, but also giving people an overview about you, meaning in Iceland, you're really well known. And, and actually, many places in the world, you're well known for being an author and your poetry, but 
but not as many people are aware, or at least they maybe weren't aware of until recently about your environmental activism. And specifically that started here in Iceland. So could you talk a bit about, about, about some of the challenges you faced as an environmental activist trying to help preserve authentic nature? Well, that was, uh, I think, in uh, when I was growing up, and you would watch the David Attenborough movies and uh, kind of mm-hmm. think about the future and uh, what humans had learned from past mistakes and things. Uh, and we were kind of, you know, acknowledging that we had been overgrazing Iceland, for example. So lots of our topsoil was lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, like many, many of my generation were planting trees. So we were kind of reclaiming what had been the, the mistakes of our ancestors. So we were, mm-hmm. and, and I think we thought we were heading towards some kind of improvement of environment. That is what we had learned from mistakes. And, and from there on, like when I was a teenager, things would be better. Um, mm. But then around the year, kind of just before the millennia, like the uh, 2000, uh, China was right. rising and gobbling up uh, kind of the raw material of the world. So this sudden demand for aluminum came into the world market. Mm. And suddenly Iceland uh, had the opportunity, not to Chinese companies, but to, uh, you know, Alcoa and uh, and uh, Rio Tinto and these uh, kind of uh, old conglomerates. Suddenly there was like this proposal or, or possibility that they could dam almost every single river in Iceland. And, and not not as an exaggeration, well, but but basically every single river and every single geothermal area in Iceland. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not saying every single like uh, I was trying to make things bigger than they actually were. But every single river in Iceland was kind of under threat, or every major river, but also, also wow. the smaller streams. So I thought. Because one aluminum smelter uses energy like one million people, and uh, and and a population of three hundred thousand. That, that means like uh, yeah, exactly. That, that means that uh, you know normally you're, you're not so aware of energy development or infrastructure projects, but but suddenly it was like two million people moved to Iceland and needed electricity. So uh, so I was worried about these issues, but I didn't have the background to. Talk about them. I didn't have a lingo of economics. I could say an area was beautiful, but that was not regarded as an argument. Uh, I could say I really like birds, but that was just making me cute and innocent, and and, <laughs> and not not somebody that should <clears throat> be listened to. So, but I just thought something was fundamentally disturbing, and and they were destroying areas that. I thought were national parks or, or holy ground. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you know, I had been taught how to, you know, don't tread on the moss. You know, don't drive your car off road. You know, you know, don't. Right. Uh, and, and basically, because these rivers are glacial rivers, and they would have to be leveled out with uh, reservoirs, and these reservoirs would then mm-hmm. cover the the little vegetation that was left in the Atlantic Highlands. So, like the. Uh, Wow. The highland oasis areas would be drowned under these reservoirs. And you would also disrupt the uh, natural flow of the rivers that 
serves the ecology of the ocean and, and marine life at the mouth of the issues. So I just thought something was fundamentally wrong, and, and but I didn't have a vocabulary. I, I wasn't like a, an expert in energy, in electricity, in, in economics or nature either. So, right. so I just got still kind of ca- tangled up in in these activist groups and, uh, you know, attended some uh, protests and uh, things like that. And slowly I started to kind of get some grip of what was happening. And, and this, but I thought this was so, I thought this issue was so big and important that I was actually wondering, why are you creating anything in a society that is destroying so much? Because nothing that I could create would come close to the greatest nesting place of pink-footed geese in the world. You know, like, what what great story could I tell uh, that would right. compare to that? And if I was the generation that lost that while I made some stupid book, you know, I didn't feel like I would be regarded, uh, you know, th- that my time was well served. So... So at that time, we went into a similar situation as I think, well, America is very intense now, but but we still, we became deeply polarized because this energy development was coming into as a, as a, as a rescue ring or a, or a ray of hope for dying communities because uh, the, the fishing, both kind of uh, advance in fishing technology, needed less people, and then uh, consolidation of, of fishing rights had maybe taken all the fishing rights mm-hmm. out of a village and left people basically in a big, beautiful house, but totally worthless. And then yeah. just general change in society was creating that my generation was not moving back home. So so it would be like a generation of my parents that thought a smelter in the 60s would have saved the town and they believed, you know, this this is what... It, it just struck as a metaphor for hope and uh, and jobs and, and, and a, recre- yeah. a restart of the community because you can't either downplay people's communities. You know, I would say, right. I would say losing the greatest nesting place for the pink-footed geese was a tragedy, but losing your town, your village, is a tragedy. So, uh, mm-hmm. so we were, but but uh, instead of finding some mutual solution that kind of the whole nation would be on terms with, uh, the the situation went into a totally polarized debate. That is, either they get the semester or they die. Or they build a semester and they basically <laughs> destroy the nature of Iceland. So, 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 right. so, so, yeah, exactly. so both parties has a, had a good reason to punch each other in the face, you know, and, and have a fist fight at the bar, or not speak to each other, or not visit your uncles anymore during the summer because, because mm-hmm. this you had divided you, basically. And, uh, yeah. and, uh, and this is what I think Americans are seeing. Very much your your good nice mm-hmm. uncles, even your nature loving uncles, suddenly just just said you're a terrorist because you want to 
you want to uh, destroy the economy, and I would say you're a bloody traitor for selling off the beauty of Iceland for uh, some stupid American company. So you know, it, it, you know, people that normally would have been right. in good terms with each other were not anymore. So, so I, I, okay. I kind of went very drawn into this issue, and I wanted to understand kind of what was happening, and I wanted to go. <clears throat> below this argument and, and below what was happening. And uh, because I thought this issue was something that I had to write about and had to be written about. But for some reason, uh, mm -hmm. journalism didn't really capture the issue. You know, and uh, and front pages of the newspapers didn't capture them. And the more and more I started looking into it, I saw that Everything was kind of flawed and skewed. Uh, how could it be that a nation in the beginning of the 21st century was actually believing that their future relied on if Alcoa wanted to build a smart terminal? You know, wh when did we come to that kind of point in history right. that one single factory that actually, you know, fully grown, educated people that I knew would, would take that argument as a as a given argument. Right. So aluminum or death. And why did we see this simple trade-off of the yeah. greatest nesting place of pink-footed geese versus a village versus a smelter? So I just thought something was fundamentally wrong and that we were suddenly in this kind of metaphor that was a metaphor for so many places that were going wrong on the planet and, and for so many societies that were drawn into this right. Yeah. Uh, zero one game, you know, like a zero sum game, and uh, and so mm -hmm. I, I had a lecture. I was asked to have a lecture for uh, and 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 at the same time the uh, military base wanted to leave Iceland because we had no enemies. Uh, the Cold War was over, and uh, U.S. intelligence knew that uh, that. Uh, the Russians were not going to attack us, and, uh, and and that there was no threat whatsoever in the North Atlantic Ocean. So they just wanted to pull out the base and uh, and reduce the cost, and also maybe put some resources to the next mistake, which was the Iraq War. But uh, but that was another interesting debate because uh, because the town next to the the base didn't want them to leave. So I thought, again, that was, again, a beautiful metaphor. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, the war is over. Uh, you know, the, the Cold War is over. They want to reduce military spending. And that becomes a tragedy for a town. You know, and, 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 and again, journalism couldn't kind of handle it because they would go and speak to people on the street and they would say they can't leave. If, if the base goes, our town dies, and uh, and our, our, our mm -hmm. teenagers will start drinking and uh, and and social disorder and uh, uh, home domestic violence. You know everything will just go go haywire. Yeah. And and uh, right. And again, this was an interesting thing. Okay, so so we are one of the richest nations in the world, or you know we are we are in the height of prosperity. And we can't keep the greatest nesting place of pink footed geese. And we need a presence of a military, even though there is peace. 
So, so there was like something mm-hmm. fundamentally wrong in our approach to reality, to our choices, to right. our opportunities, to kind of how we sensed where money comes from. There was just some total alienation mm-hmm. happening there. So I thought that was uh, kind of very interesting in a in a in a in a in a deeper level than just wanting to preserve a nesting place. So yeah, so I was invited to have a lecture. I'm sorry, I'm doing a monologue now. <laughs> I'm not discussing. <laughs> so so it was okay. Like, <laughs> it's, okay. <laughs> it's, it's all really interesting. I think it's giving great background. So 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 I was uh, asked to have a lecture the same week for the annual convention the annual marketing convention of Iceland for the staff of the stock market of Iceland and for uh, the annual convention of the left green party. And I thought, okay, I don't have time to make three lectures. I'll just make one lecture and I'll just remove all kind of the political jargon. I'll, I'll try to, I'll, I'll try to get this issue so I can actually have the same speech for the uh, the left green party people and the stock market staff. So I I, I spoke about right. so I took the uh, these kind of biggest issues of Iceland as kind of a case study of uh, of creativity actually and how we are creative, how our choices are, right. and how we can get stuck in realities. Uh, because we can never kind of imagine the alternative reality that we might have been living in. So, so the military base became a beautiful example of why military spending can't you know, become less in the world. Because everywhere you're spending this money, you have a mm. government, you have a nice town, you have good people that want to work in these factories, and they don't want to work less, right. they don't want to earn less, they don't want to have less activity next year than last year. So so we were pr- we were proving Eisenhower's warning about the military-industrial complex, that when you have two million men women working in this, you know, this machine does not want to stop. And in terms of the dams, right. you know, we had learned to serve our needs with energy, but then we had beautiful young engineers, brilliant minds, that uh, knew how to build a dam. And they just didn't want to be told in their 40s, hey, thank you, you have built your dam. Now you have to recreate your career and do something else. No, they just want, they were better at doing dams after each dam, and they just didn't want to stop making dams. So so I, I started to write my book, Dreamland, kind of without going head-on into, you know, my stupid uncle that wanted the semester. I, I wanted, or, or, or pleasing my friends that uh, wanted to preserve the keys. I wanted to come kind of behind the issue and approach people from a completely different direction and uh, and maybe even respect people's need for, you know, longing to stay in an area, longing to thrive and longing to have a, have a community. So I started writing Dreamland, which is about dams and, and things like that. But I don't actually mention dams until page 200. But still, it's a book about <laughs> smelters and dams. But but I don't mention the issue until page 200. I remember when we talked about this back in the first kind of set of interviews and how 
this ended up like Dreamland ended up changing some people's minds. Like they had been kind of set on who they thought you were or like, you know, what you were fighting for. And then they, they got a better understanding about the situation in Iceland. Like you mentioned, all of the streams and the rivers being dammed and how, what that consequence would be. It would actually turned people around <laughs> who had already thought they made up their minds. So that was kind of fascinating too, that this manifesto of yours about the environment was powerful enough to have this type of impact here. I think it was also because I, I didn't approach people, I didn't use the jargon that was being used. And I just mm. put things into maybe, uh, and I took people through stories and maybe some metaphors that uh, they maybe had not thought about. So I was actually very interested and pleased or uh, honored that actually that we had, you know, that that actually somebody called me and said, you know, I thought you were an asshole, but I actually have changed my mind. <laughs> and I think you're right. <laughs> so, so because that's so rare. You know, normally if you change your mind, you have lost. You know, and normally we're supposed to win mm -hmm. an argument. and. And you lose an argument, and nobody wants to be a loser, so nobody wants to change his mind. And uh, so, right. so I thought, uh, and I also felt that uh, it was a good insight, also into kind of the, um, you know, it was a very good school in protest and uh, impact and uh, persistence and uh, power structures. So it was a. It was a, it was a very, but but completely draining also. You know, like I, I feel for all these activists in America now, uh, because it's like taking your candle and burning it both ends, and with super glue. So you have a candle here until it, <laughs> until, it, until it burns, until it burns into your 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 your, uh, your palms. So it's it's, uh, yeah. and I could see so many people like using all the resources because you you get so tangled up in the cause and it becomes so i think my body thought i was in a civil war or something because i would wake up at night like with a heartbeat and uh, and i think uh, yeah i think my body thought i wow. was i was in a war situation everything was so tense and and we could be wow. losing the area next week and and it was like next thursday there's the parliament discussion you know, it's do or die next Thursday because then they decide. So we have to mobilize, you know, ten thousand people, and uh, and so I was like on the phone, like constantly right. mobilizing. But I got to know lots of my favorite people in my life through this, and uh, but I actually yeah, got to know awesome. many of the opponents too, and I, I don't really dislike them, like people that were on the other side. So. So if I meet them in the street, I, I, I have a chat. <laughs> and, uh, okay. <laughs> it's friendly. <laughs> but, but At least. There's, there's just a few, you know, it's only if people really stepped over the line and became like severely mm, dishonest okay. That's good. And, uh, and, uh, and really brutal. And I was like, you know, like, I don't like you. <laughs> but, but you know, maybe, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. people working for the companies or something. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I, I don't Definitely. have like, a, I didn't actually 
consider myself having enemies, but I, I think I did make some enemies. But personally, I didn't make enemies. It's kind of hard not to. Yes, it, it, it is. Yeah, it's kind of hard, it, not, it to hard when, not to win. Yeah. yeah, especially when you're. These are business opportunities, and people are really looking to like make lots yeah. of money. Yeah. And in essence, this to them feels like you said it's a, a it's like a personal attack in yeah. essence yeah. on them and their you know potential to be billionaires or yeah. something. Yeah, so but it was like an evil social mm. experiment because Iceland is divided by rivers. Mm, okay. is, you know, we have rivers that is kind of the main line through every single every single you know community in Iceland. There's a river, and suddenly you create this situation where all the rivers are up for grabs. So basically, the river would be yeah. something that uh, people would cherish. Or the business opportunity would be something that would, you know, throw, make their eyes glow. So this would destroy communities all around Iceland, like uh, tear them apart basically, because uh, yeah. because one group, one political party would like to dam the river, the other not. So this made politics much more vicious and much more uh, uh, polarized, much angrier, much, you know. Yeah. So this was not a very good time, actually, in Iceland. And so, like I say, I, I really feel for America now, what's happening there. Yeah. And all the things that make Iceland beautiful, like, for instance, the fact that, of course, you know, tourism blew up after Eyjafjallajökull yeah. volcano went off. But, like, people wouldn't have been even maybe aware of how beautiful Iceland is if these rivers had all been dammed and all this stuff had changed in the country itself, the nature. Yeah. Yeah, so basically it, it was also kind of destroying the identity of Iceland and, and some kind of way the, the, the soul the soul of Iceland. And, uh, and that was, uh, you know, much of the holiness that many consider is in the central highlands of Iceland. Just going there with mm-hmm. bulldozers. It, it was like, uh, you know, it was... I remember when I saw from the war of Iraq, where when the interview with the uh, head of the National Museum after it had been raided, the National Museum of Iraq or something, mm. after it had been raided and, yeah. and broken to pieces, you know, all these artifacts. That that's actually how we fest. You know, when you when you take a, when oh, you take okay. machines and bulldozers and explosives and you just Basically, destroy you know fifty square kilometers of of pristine land. It's it's uh, it's brutal. It's painful to watch. Yeah. So that's why people became so strongly polarized. Also, because it it, it went below like normal opinions of policy or mm-hmm. or you know. Five percent tax or ten percent tax. You know, it 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 went far into the core of people's identity. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So this happened, meaning like you were and other people were able to stop this damming of the rivers and everything. We managed happening. to push the machine out of some areas. Okay. We didn't stop yeah. everything. But we, there's still smelters. We, we yeah. Some but the madness of that time is not is not here anymore. Yeah. And there's a different, I'm guessing, feeling about how important Icelandic nature is 
to many of the people who have maybe been on the sides of the opposing side from you? Well, we won some time also. I don't think many people regret that we won. <laughs> so, so, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have proved right in many cases. And, uh, yeah. and, and people actually came afterwards to us and said, you know, we were maybe a bit extreme and stuff. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, in that case, maybe I'm, I was not, uh, I, 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 I was a bit more sarcastic than, than, than nice. <laughs> so, 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 and then of course, tourism came in. And that's, of course, the story of Iceland is how we always jump between extremes. So, mm-hmm. so it's like it, it's like an ingrown cycle in our psyche, you know, since Second World yeah. War, or you could say, Great Depression down, Second World War up, because we were we were uh, uh, we were kind of a military investment created lots of jobs in Iceland during the war, and then after the war we went down. Because we spent all the money from the military years, <laughs> and then we found herring, and we went up again, and then herring went down, mm-hmm. so we went down, and then we invested in a fishing fleet so we could catch lots of cod, and then we went up, and in the seventies, lots of big houses built all around Iceland, and then the cod went down. <laughs> so it's like it's like we have this crazy uh, ups and downs, and and you look at places like Norway that and, and this up and down goes with the weather and and kind of, kind of yeah. everything. so uh, so it I think can be very intense in that way like uh, you you look at somebody in Norway that lives in a house that looks like it's been there for a hundred years without any economic fluctuations and they say why don't you leave <laughs> me uh, the the 12th of March and we'll go cross country skiing together at five o'clock. And I'm like, I, yeah. I don't know if I can go cross country skiing the 12th of March here in Iceland because it might be a blizzard, it might be raining, it might be whatever. Yeah, maybe not enough snow. Maybe, maybe it won't <laughs> be snow. Maybe it will be too much snow. How can you talk like this? Yeah. How, can you, how can you plan the future? Like, like the future could be calculated. Are you a prophet? Or <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows anything about yeah, the future. So, so just gobble up what you can now and prepare for the next down. So now then tourism yeah, went yeah. up like crazy. And then something came and just turned up tourism in a, in overnight. So, so Like a like light switch, yeah. So, insane. But everybody expected that. I didn't expect a virus, but everybody was talking about, okay, this hotel here, what kind of an elderly home should this be? Or what kind of a student apartment? <laughs> yeah, that's or, true. Or, or, you know, what, what, how will we use these facilities when this goes down? So, so that's what yeah. we're discussing now. Yeah. Yeah. I've been working in the tourism industry since I moved here. Yeah. And the trend has definitely been this decrease at least, especially from certain places like the US, UK, meaning the numbers of people coming. Granted, there were still lots of people coming, but just not the same amounts of millions. And this, of course, with all the, the companies that had decided to start up and get in on the business of tourism was affecting everybody, right? With all the competition and 
the race to the bottom when it comes to pricing. And yeah, it's just, it's a discussion. And yet everyone's keep going in the same cycle of like hoping it just will, will change again. And all of a sudden tons of tourists yeah. will come. And this is pre COVID yeah. that there was a, a, you know, already you could see it going down quite a bit. And the plateau had already been, was already yeah. met some years yeah. ago and it has been on the way down for, for yeah. many years. So yeah, you're right. It's just, and now it's like, you know, five star hotel in Iceland that is, Still being built and it's like who's gonna be in this hotel? Like this is insane. Yeah. But this is, you know, like you mentioned the mentality of like just gobble yeah. it up, yeah, go yeah, for yeah, it, yeah, yeah, see yeah, what yeah. happens, take the risk. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so just imagine how, how beautiful yeah. the ruins will be. Picturesque just put, yeah. put beside it so there'll be picturesque ruins. That's that's the only thing I thought. <laughs> abandoned yeah. hotels yeah. there are already apartments luxury apartments downtown yeah. that are, no one's living in because they're yeah. too expensive so there's signs of this to some yeah. degree yeah okay so things have happened since that time since dream, uh, dreamland in particular i mean you've published other books you've won awards not necessarily about environmental issues but as of 2019 you published on time and water yeah. And so this kind of brings you back to that root of, of I almost want to say Dreamland. <laughs> that's the name of it in the Dreamland, yeah, uh, in Icelandic, but of Dreamland. And so, <laughs> and so, can you talk about now, like, why did you feel like, because now you're taking it on an international scale, because Dreamland was for in Iceland, basically. That's where a lot of people read yeah. it. But on Time and Water, it first was published in Icelandic. But now being made available in other languages, and why do you feel like now I need to kind of jump back into this conversation and tackling the vast issue of climate change and somehow you know getting this across to people? What was that? What what sparked that in you? Yeah, that was kind of um, so after Dreamland, I was totally totally drained. So I did both Dreamland, the book, yeah. and the movie, and then came the yeah. crash. The economic crash, the, the banking crash. Yeah, I forgot to mention <laughs> as, as the cycle. So. Minor <laughs> details. So, so, and because my book was the only book available in English uh, from Iceland, or one of very few books about current issues available in English, I yeah. think every single journalist in the world contacted me. Like, like, like I'm, I'm again not. I'm not exaggerating. So, so I, I just, I just started. I just started to get like this physical remorse when they said, "Oh, tell me about the crisis." I decreased it, and if I can also decrease it, and I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah. ask me about my children's books," and, and I would, I would, <laughs> I, I, would I would, I would answer a, a New York Times journalist, and, and then I would go on Amazon, and and my my wrath about the banking crisis would not budge my sales on children's books, so I was like. You know, why am I answering these stupid questions? You know, like uh, so. Yeah. So I was like, I missed my former self. I missed the person that uh, wrote fantasy and fairy tales, and uh, and uh, I lost. Uh, and so I, I got kind of totally kind of distracted from you know talking about these issues. But then, and I was just gonna write something about my grandparents or something like their glacial travels and things. Mm. And, and because they were alive still, and I was, I, I felt like I had lost all my time with them through activism, where I should have been, you know, collecting their stories. So I thought, I thought, okay, I'm going to collect the stories of 
these epic glacial honeymoons of the 1950s and uh, and this beautiful glacial this, honeymoon. Yeah, they went on three week glacial honeymoons. So, uh, so and That's this awesome. entrepreneurial spirit when they were kind of building all these kind of societies and you know you know everything you know this generation that just had to make everything from scratch. So I wanted to interview them and. Uh, I didn't really know for what. Just I just wanted to be non-political and, and basically, you know, not touch on dams and all this boring stuff, and and not get involved yeah. with being uh, uh, waking up at night feeling uh, scared for some issue. So then I got a phone call yeah. and I was invited to interview the Dalai Lama, and uh, mm. and of course, you know. I, I thought that was a practical joke or something, so I said, "I'm sorry, I'm, uh, <laughs> I have to call the Pope uh, because I'm I'm Christian, so and so <laughs> I'm baptized. So can you call me tomorrow." And they said yes. And then then he called me the next day and said, "What did the Pope say?" And he said, "He said Amen." And uh, so, so, <laughs> so suddenly I was scheduled to take a one-hour interview with the Dalai Lama. So so you know. You you prepared some interviews, but <laughs> I was like, wow, I have to prepare this interview. Yeah. Like, uh, what do what do, what yeah. do I ask a person that has reincarnated fourteen times? You know, it has to be a, a super yeah. intelligent question. So, right, yeah. so then I went into mythology, Nordic mythology, and in Nordic mythology, the world starts with a cow, a frozen cow. Mm. So first there was nothing, and then came. The frozen cow, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not like the Bible. First there was nothing, and then came light. No, no. First there was nothing, and then came the cow, and it was a frozen cow. <laughs> and from the udders of this cow came right. the four rivers that nourish the world, and and, and from there mm. came the first god, and then from that god, you know, blah blah blah. It's, it's a really dark, bizarre kind of origin story, and it doesn't make any sense. You can't yeah. make a Marvel Comics movie out of this cow. It's just impossible. <laughs> and it sounds like a misunderstanding, like a whispering game that went wrong. You know, first there was nothing. Right, yeah. And somebody told somebody. Telephone. Somebody told somebody something, you know, 2,000 years ago. And uh, and a thousand years after the story was told, it washes up on Iceland uh, as some kind of a. I think it started with a cow. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so, so, I heard I cow. Let's go with that. I think my grandma <laughs> said cow, something like that. Yeah. So, so, but, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So then this goes further, uh, and and I, I and the cow's name is Humla, H U M L A. So, and and that doesn't okay. make any sense either. It's the Humla of prosperity. Still doesn't make any sense. But if you go to yeah. India, of course, where Dalai Lama is in exile, uh, he has, they have, you know, the holy cow in India, and they have the world cow there, which is Kamadenu, and this cow embodies kind of all the elements and all the gods of the universe, and the foundations of that cow are kind of a snowy feet, so it has like mountain feet. This cow. Hmm. So, so the okay. mountain feet of the cow, the foundations of the cow, are the Himalayas. So, okay, interesting. A cow standing on the Himalayas. 
And there you will find mm-hmm. a district called Himla, which is the same name as that of the cow. And if you yeah. follow that trail, you have the Himalayan trail leading you to Mount Kailas, the most holy mountain in the world, the center of the universe, according to Hindus, uh, according to Buddhists, yeah. the throne of Shiva for Hindus. And from there come the four major rivers that nourish the world, the Indus, the Ganga, the Brahmaputra. And of course, the source of these glaciers are of these rivers are glaciers. And one of the major mm-hmm. sources of the Ganga is a glacier called Gomuk, and that means the mouth of the cow. So suddenly, of course, mm-hmm. a frozen cow as a source of life yeah. is a perfect yeah. for a glacier. You know, because it's a perfect system. It's, it's totally free. It gathers water when it's too uh, violent, you know, during the rainy season when you don't want all this water, then it keeps it. And it gives it out for free mm-hmm. during the dry season. When you really, really, when your life and death actually hangs on, you know, this melt water from right. the glaciers that it's uh, that it's gathered during the summer. But then, mm-hmm. because of global warming, these glaciers are all retreating, and uh, and that is threatening kind of the foundation of life for one billion people. And the Dalai Lama mm-hmm. was showing lots of concern for this issue. And uh, these are three nuclear states that are relying on this water. These are uh, often countries kind of on the brink of of hardship, or, or in in hardship, or or on kind of a kind of on the brink of survival. Often the the populations, uh, you know, Pakistan, mm-hmm. India, you know, just many very vulnerable kind of poor districts that that rely on this water. And uh, and if anything fails, then it's it's not just about waiting for the next season. It's basically, you know, everything relies on its season. So so the Dalai Lama right. is worried about these glaciers, and uh, and he was referring Icelandic glacial science in the interview that uh, we had some understanding of how glaciers mm-hmm. were reacting to climate change, and so for a strange way, this story started that. At, at my grandmother's house, leading me to the Dalai Lama, to the Himalaya and the Holy Cow, pointed again back home. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is this is. Yeah. Can I can I weave a story out of this? Can I uh, can I get past the vanity of putting my grandmother and the Dalai Lama in the same book? <laughs> can, can I make that? Uh, can I make that? You know, is that doable? You know, like uh, the most distant. Mm-hmm. People you could possibly imagine a, a, a woman born in Iceland and a, and a holy man from Tibet. So, so slowly I started to see that many of the core stories that I have had in my life. And of course, I was again okay. I was worried about an island in the highlands of Iceland, and that almost you know that burned my candle from both ends. Okay, so am, am I going to start worrying about? The future of glaciers <laughs> on the planet <laughs> and, and, and the fate of one billion people or, or just humanity and the planet itself, you know, you know, is this wormhole, you know, do I want to go into climate science and understand it? Am I ready for, right. you know, the possible pain of understanding it? You know, do I want to understand it? Do I want to yeah. fill myself with worries? You know, is there hope there? You know, or am I just kind of 
taking my my uh, my uh, my happiness and throw, flushing it down this this black hole. So right. so so then yeah. the question is, and how do you add to all this discussion, all this literature, and also this polarized issue of climate change? And uh, yeah, so that was the big task. And you tackled that in your book on time and water, which is a lot, but also just like you telling this story, it's so much more interesting to listen to. Like you mentioned with Dremelandes, you tried to make it so that you're not just throwing out jargon and whatever else, but actually taking these relatable, well, maybe not everyone's grandma somehow can connect to the Dalai Lama, but you know what I mean? But in terms of like your personal life and the activism you've been doing and then bringing this in a format where people can actually like read it internalize it, understand it, and then figure out in maybe their own ways how they could add to this in the world and their own, you know, ways of activism. Yes. So actually, again, I felt uncomfortable that I thought something was wrong, but I wasn't literate on the, mm. on the language, you know, again, like in Dreamland, you know, in Dreamland, they didn't know what a terawatt hour was. And I could not put that into context with, with yeah. Icelandic nature. So if somebody says, I'm going to dam 30 terawatt hours in Iceland, you know, I, 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 I couldn't, okay. uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. you say, yeah. watt hours or Kabilia watt hours, you know, it, it had no meaning for me. But when I crunched the figures, I could, I could get goosebumps when somebody said five terawatt hours because I understood how much mm. destruction he was talking about. So, so I didn't understand, you know, the PPMs of CO2. I didn't understand what 35 gigatons of CO2 actually is. And and I went, into, mm. I was diving into the IPCC reports, and it was almost like uh, the apocalypse was being decoded. Like it was not put into the most accessible mm. form. So okay, RCP right. scenario 4.6. Uh, RCP scenario 6.5, RCP scenario 8.6, you know, what, what is this, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, what yeah. scenarios should I believe in? And, and so it took like a, a long time just to become literate and kind of understand the issues and then explain them to myself, uh, mm-hmm. kind of find another language and find a way to incorporate that into uh, literature or a, or a narrative thread without throwing people off track and also without intimidating them, saying like, aha, so you don't know mm-hmm. what RCP 8.6 is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, wow. So basically approaching people with the fact that that new terms, new language is something that humans have also always found difficult to grasp. Paradigm changes only happen when the general public starts understanding the language and starts, you know, mm-hmm. so the jargon can, can often, you know, it can go from the elite uh, thinkers of France until until we're we're somewhere in the streets of Haiti, you know, fighting for democracy, you know, yeah. from being a term that nobody yeah. understands to being like a you know what? What just everybody can speak with passion about. You know, so 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 yeah, in Iceland exactly. we can see so clearly 
how terms go from the ivory tower or from being coined into becoming something that you can fight for. And it's, and it's really yeah. interesting, the transition phase, when the word is not understood. So, so I mm-hmm. take lots of examples from Icelandic history, from when we were offered freedom, I think actually that the, the, the uh, so when we got like a constitution, but when we were offered freedom in 1809, but, but the terms mm-hmm. of the French Revolution had not been translated into Icelandic. So like freedom, uh, democracy, you know, like, you know, it's like I'm offering you, uh, uh, some, some, uh, some just jargon bargain. You know, why don't you want jargon bargain? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, 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 and after a hundred years, somebody says, well, Iceland, well, Andre offered Jewel, Jewel's jargon bargain and she didn't want it. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, uh, like uh, so, so when they said Zargenbergen, democracy in 1809 just had no meaning. What does that mean? Right. Uh, yeah. And uh, democracy, freedom, parliament. When they said every man is equal, you know, no. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> That's you know, what, what, no. Every man is not equal. I have to explain to you. That man is mm-hmm. more important than me because I'm a peasant, and I have I'm mm. not even allowed to sit in the church. Because there's not space for me, so I'm sitting outside the church right, because that's where right. I belong. And this person takes the decisions. What do you mean that I should raise my hand and have a say? Because so so it, it mm. so in Iceland in 1809, uh, this king of the dog days, Jürgen, came and he, he locked in the local Danish rulers and he claimed Iceland is free from Denmark and everyone is equal. He became a temporary ruler until. 1810, we would have a parliament where every man, uh, I think it's, I think it was men, uh, is, is has the same say. That is the poor and the uh, and the rich. And of course, that contradicted mm-hmm. society totally. 88% of the nation were poor tenants. They had no, they didn't own their farms. So, right. So the people that understood the terms. They were born 1809. That is, uh, so he was so far, he was so ahead of his, of his times that, uh, that, that, uh, nobody had asked for independence. Nobody had mentioned it. So, so, so it's like, <laughs> yeah. what do you mean independent? And how does a parliament look like? You know, how, how do you stand? You know, where do you stand? Yeah. Who, who, you know, what's, uh, what ceremonies do you do? What you know? How does it work? How do you dress? You know, so it's it's really interesting to you know. So I'm trying to write about, actually approach people from the point of view that it's normal that you don't understand it, but it's vital that mm. you do understand it, and and it is mm-hmm. actually your duty to understand it, because somebody did understand democracy. And he and the power was handed over to you, and that ma- makes an obligation of you yourself as a citizen to understand right. the science that is out there. Because now the leaders of the world, mortal people, they are meeting and they're discussing the climate, and we think that is very boring. So they're discussing if the mm-hmm. if the, if the war, world will will rise. 
two degrees, the temperatures will rise, you know, one degree, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees. And we think that is a boring mm -hmm. issue. Uh, but we don't understand. We are not able to back a bit and ask, okay, when right. in world history did the leaders of the world meet and discuss how they were changing the weather? Did, did Napoleon mm -hmm. talk about that? Did Ramses II talk about that? Did uh, did uh, Genghis Khan? Did he think he was changing the weather? Uh, <laughs> no, nobody. Since the the gods were sitting on the hills of uh, of uh, of Olympus Mountain, did the leaders, mm -hmm. the rulers of the world, believe that they were changing the weather? So, so that is a totally new ground of world history that human beings mm -hmm. are meeting to discuss how they are melting glaciers and changing weather. And and that is not something that should be taken for granted <laughs> as a normal time. No. So my kind of argument in the book is that this means that we're on a totally different level as humanity because history is about, you know, civil wars, you know, uh, colonization, you know, all sorts of, you know, Human things, uh, human greed, human power—you know—all these, all these things. Yeah. Uh, mythology is when you're messing with the foundations. You know, when the gods turned on the lights. You know, mm. when they scattered, scattered mm -hmm. the stars in the heavens. When, when they separated land from ocean. Now we are merging glaciers with ocean. That is. Uh, the glaciers were separated from the ocean, now we're merging. Okay, let's turn on the lights and let's merge glaciers with ocean. That's what we're doing. And and that is mythological. Yeah, that is yeah. not like colonizing yeah. a country. It's not like going on, on a war with your neighbor like we've always done. No. It, it's a completely different ballgame. So we are merging glaciers yeah, and ocean. Definitely. And that's not normal. No. And I think too, like you mentioned, with it being like people on, in round tables talking and they're in lots of power, like you mentioned, that's boring to people and not understanding the significance of what one degree in a rise temperature might mean. But I think from your perspective of what you're doing, that's really visual. For instance, having a funeral for Okjokuk Glacier, which made international headlines because it does bring home this is a problem and this is what happened. Like we, this glacier is gone yeah. and you have a, a plaque there for a letter that you wrote to the future. So could you explain like, you know, where did the idea come from where you're like, I'm going to have this public funeral <laughs> for this glacier and then the letter to the future. Well, well it wasn't my idea. I was like, you know, I was just, I was just okay, like okay. any other person. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That glacier is gone. Okay. You know, so, so actually just like I was, you know, taking a step back and reminding us that uh, this is not normal. Uh, it needed uh, people from Texas, uh, Dominic and Simony, anthropology mm, anthropology okay. professors. I was not aware of that. To uh, and they've been kind of doing anthropology projects about global warming, also because uh, of course Texas is the home of global warming. <laughs> for the inventions of uh, of oil. Uh, I've had a lot to say, so uh, so it was their initiative to uh, 
to make this plaque, this memorial for the first glacier. Okay. Ah. And I thought first, okay. okay, this is a kind of a quirky idea. Uh, is it a good <laughs> idea? Will, will, will people tease me for this? Uh, but then I was like thinking, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a good person for the job. You know, I've, I've been writing about these issues for a long time, so it, it fits. It fits my uh, my mindset. So I scratched my head for a whole summer, and I was trying to make poems and all sorts of texts and stuff. And and then I came up with okay, just a very simple letter to the future. So on mountaintops in Iceland, we have these vildsjau. You 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 you've seen these plates that point in all directions on the horizon. Yeah. Yep. But this is like a wheelchair. This is like a horizon guide or something, like on the mountaintops. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I thought, okay, this is like one of those, but it's different. This one is pointing to the future, and then pointing back mm. back at ourselves. And uh, and this one is addressing people after maybe three hundred years, as well as addressing us now. So how do you talk to these yeah. different people simultaneously? So I came up with this text right. that uh, just very straight to the point that uh, Oak Glacier is the first Icelandic glacier to be lost to climate change. We expect all our glaciers to follow the same path in the next 200 years. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done, but only you know mm. if we did it. August 2019, mm. 415 ppm of CO2. So, so just make that in copper. I actually did not expect anyone to see this text. So, so my main anxiety <laughs> was uh, was first, uh, if I make a misspelling, it will be <laughs> it will be difficult to fix in copper. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. secondly, hopefully it was proofread <laughs> before. And, and secondly. Uh, I thought, okay, you know, who's going to climb this mountain and stumble upon this plaque? So maybe, you know, maybe 10 people a year in the next 100 years. So it's not going to be like a... Mm. But then this went viral, and and this is probably the text of mine that is almost like a reference point. I can actually almost ask somebody on the streets somewhere in the world, do you, do you, do you recall this, that? happening you know this memorial to a glacier and mm -hmm. and many people will remember that so it, it struck yeah. kind of this perfect moment in uh, in history because the major news channels had decided that climate news needed more attention but you can't say mm -hmm. a yet another story about uh, a polar bear or uh, or so this was quirky enough to kind of and and the text kind of struck a chord and uh, so this went totally viral and uh, and uh, yeah. and even the mayor of LA he read this text when he was taking over the C20 which is kind of the collective of the biggest cities in the world the mega cities so he said the next ten years define humanity uh, so he read this text. And I was like, okay, I've been uh, having a bad conscious of my uh, carbon footprint, but I think I hopefully, you know, if, if only 0.00001% happens after the words of the mayor in LA, then, then I have a, 
compensated for my life's emissions. <laughs> <That's what laughs> Your life's emissions. <laughs> Wipe clean. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, so, so also visually, so, and also putting it into maybe visual context, like, like emissions. Mm-hmm. Emissions is not a good word. Emissions, it sounds like, uh, you know, emissions. It's, it doesn't seem, and CO2 is, is also, CO2 is invisible. So, invisible yeah. emissions, it's not smoke. You know, if it was green and the world, or the world was getting pinker or something, it would be easier to kind of yeah. show us what's happening to the world. But because it's invisible, and 35 gigatons of something that is invisible, you know, that's just a very, very much mm-hmm. of nothing. So I, I recalculated right. that in, into volcanic eruptions because that's visible, you know. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. you remember the Eyjafjallajökull layer with volcanic eruption. Because sometimes we think humans are small compared to nature, you know, and what's bigger in nature than volcanoes? So, you know, we must be dwarves mm-hmm. compared to vo- volcanoes. So, so, uh, right. or ants according to volcanoes. So, so, uh, we, uh, had this volcanic eruption in 2010. It emits, it, it, the emissions from that CO2 was about 150,000 tons per day. Humans mm. emit about 100 million tons per day. Ooh. So if you divide yeah, <laughs> uh, one hundred fifty thousand with uh, one hundred million, or, or was it the other way? Um, then we yeah. get the uh, equal of human impact is like six hundred sixty-six of these volcanoes. I'm sorry for the mystical numbers, but it, I was just doing math. I was not. <laughs> I was not yeah. I was trying to be death metal here, but uh, yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, 666 volcanoes erupting every day, all year, week after week, month after month, year after year. That's intense. Because the Icelandic yeah. volcano is only erupting like two or three weeks. It's not like, or maybe one right. summer or something, but it's not a constant phenomenon. So this, right. the, and you ask anybody, any geologist, can you tell me when Earth had the last 666 uh, decades of volcanic eruptions, uh, he, will for the first, he will not be able to point at that time. And yes, he will be able to point at that time, but it will be a very clear mark in, in, mm. uh, in a very clear fossil mark of a, of a right, great yeah. shift in everything in nature. So, uh, right. so, yeah. so just to understand the fire gods that we have become, and uh, and so use so That's instead right. of using new terms like emissions, it can also be good just to translate back to the first words that humans learned, yeah. which is probably fire, volcano, mm-hmm. grandmothers, love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. I explain some of the. Uh, the jargon that is needed, but I also just go to the primitive, the most pixeled words that we have, you know, grandmother, time, love, water, you know, yeah. holy, 
Absolutely. So, uh, so keeping cow. cow. <laughs> so, <it's> like, <laughs> so keeping things super, super, super uh, simple, like uh, right. shaving away yeah. all the nonsense, but still putting right. in stories. Uh, and on top of that, right? Yeah. In, in addition to that, you have your TED talk that you recently yeah. did, and and by the way, things like your you know, the Memorial for the Glacier, your books. I'll have links to that in the description box okay. for this yep. episode. But when it, and, and your TED Talk as well, which is on Solheimiyoka Glacier. Yep. And I think that's another, like, visual representation because, for first of all, I mean, Ohkyoka Glacier, many people didn't even know yep. about. Whereas Solheimiyoka, a lot of people come here and they go on that yep. glacier for glacier walks, ice climbing, yep. like it's, it's more familiar to people who have either researched anything about activities in Iceland or have actually come to yeah. the country. And I think showing this place that a lot of people might hold dear or have dreams of coming to and how this massive ice cap is at some point going to yeah. disappear, I think for a lot of people is, you know, hard to believe, but also it's, it's pretty, um, it puts it more in realistic scope yeah. for them to be like, whoa, we need to do something. All of this ice is melting yeah. and, you know, there's glacier lagoons now that are forming because of this place. So was it your idea to have this TED Talk on the glacier or was that kind of another collaboration of ideas? It came actually, it came through my uh, co-director that did my, uh, we did the book, the film together. Uh, we just premiered this film uh, less than a month ago. The, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to uh, get into that for sure. Ago, <laughs> the hero's journey to the third, yeah. third pole. And uh, so it was actually, so I asked her, you know, don't you have a good Canon camera? And, and I have to do a TED talk and maybe you can you, <laughs> you, you can you can film me. And they asked me what kind of phone I had because nobody has film crew. We, you can't fly around, so. But she said, uh, why don't we do it on a glacier? <laughs> and I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> let's, uh, let's try that. Yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah. And, uh, and it worked out very well, and we were lucky with the weather, and and uh, and it turned out very good. So uh, so I was I was yeah. a bit stressed. I was like, what if I lose too much wind, or if it just looks silly? But uh, I, I think it was a, it was a good statement to just be on a glacier. Yeah, definitely. I enjoyed watching it. It's not it's not very no, long, it's one, yeah. but it's impactful the same. It's it's succinct and directly to the point for sure in terms of was, what the future I holds for us. How many stories I could tell in three and a half minutes? Because uh, I managed yeah. to say like I was like wondering what what more do I want to say, and I was like not not so much more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. So in regards though, and. Your book, though, is it out in the United States? It comes States, out yeah, in March. On, on Time and Water. Yeah. In March, okay. In March, but it's out in English in, in, in the UK. And it's and it's coming out okay. in 27 languages. So it's... Um, wow. So I've yeah, been... It's uh, doing very well in Italy now. So I'm... Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, awesome. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I have become a big intellectual in Italy. <laughs> but the, with the, with the Italian grandmas now yeah, you've got like <laughs> no, no it, it's really it's okay. really fun okay. when you write something in Icelandic and, and, it, and you do it even in a quirky way so I'm talking about language and I'm 
talking about words like uh, that we have for uh, it's uh, an Icelandic word called angurvarð. It's uh, you know angurvarð. Do you know that word? Angur. That's uh, angurvarð. It's like when you sit by the campfire and the evening is coming to an end okay. and you're singing kind of the last songs and it's like a sad song and you get this this melancholic kind of uh, good, good, sweet. It's like sweet melancholy or sweet sadness. Uh, so yeah, bittersweet, bittersweet. Yeah, yeah. Or, but, it, but bittersweet. Yeah. Still, so anger is, is kind of kinda, a, yeah. something that troubles you. And wild is something like uh, it's like uh, it's like being tranquil. So it's a uh, bitter mm. tranquil. It's like a soft, soft, okay. soft <laughs> anger. Or uh, not 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 soft. Yeah, remorse, okay. Soft, soft remorse or something. Yeah. And because uh, it's, it's yeah, going to yeah, end that street, way. It's, it's like this street, good yeah. moment. But yeah. in the Faroe Islands, they have a similar word that is called sorglirni, okay. and, and that's that that's made of the word. It's that is sweet sorrow, actually. Or yeah, like sort of like this. Yeah, yeah. So there's a bit more, bit more sorrow in it. And uh, yeah, okay. And uh, yeah, so uh, so uh, so I'm writing about words like this and how you know how if you don't have a word for things, maybe you can't feel the things. You know you. You can you can only <laughs> or at least you can't put a word. So because we have this word, we can express this feeling. While while you might be at, by the campfire and you don't have a word, you'll be like, oh, I feel so strange. I feel like happy and sad simultaneously. Mm. Uh, I don't know how I'm feeling. Like, yeah. You know, like, like I was deprived, yeah. but I'm still so happy. You know. So, so it's like you'd have to explain the feeling. But if you have the feeling, a word for it, then. Then you can use it, and and you can kind of capture it. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of um, I don't speak German, but I know that there's a lot of German words that are like yeah, yeah, yeah. that I've heard about, right? That like allow you to express a, a feeling in in one word. Yeah. So I'm writing a bit about those things, and and I was a bit, and somebody warned me that uh, that I couldn't uh, write like that because I wanted to write an international mm-hmm. bestseller. And, and then you should take away all the <laughs> all the small quirky things and just keep to the general. You know, just you can refer to Eyjafjallajökull because that was in the world news, but but don't refer to this faraway farm because it's too quirky. Um, but then I am so happy when I see that the things that are picked out of the book are actually the things that mm-hmm. are the quirky ones that that makes it more special. So yeah, they're yeah, memorable. So that makes me hopeful for that. You can express something on a very local level, but still reach people. Now, I think it'd be kind of interesting to shift gears for a minute to talk about you being a director. So you talked about you directed Droy Malantis, and most recently, though, you directed A Hero's Journey to the Third Pole, and that has to do with mental illness. So could you talk about, like, where, why this topic and also, like, you know, in Iceland about round mental illness as well and the kind of perception here. Yeah, so basically I'm a two-time uh, accidental filmmaker. Yeah. Accidental? So I never <laughs> okay. had the intentions of being a filmmaker. Or I would never have even had the hebris of, of claiming that I could be a director. Um, so when my book Dreamland did very well, uh, there came this kind of... Uh, 
called for it being a documentary film. So the rights were sold, and there was a producer took it over, and uh, and a director came into the picture. But uh, I got severely involved in the process, so I was uh, I was mm. helping with the interviews, doing the script with the director. I was in the field filming. I was choosing the locations to film. I was on the editing table with the director. I was in the music chamber mm-hmm. making the score or like giving feedback <laughs> on the score. And then finally when yeah. I came to came to the titles, uh the, my producer asked, and what's your title, you know? I said, I was just helping this and this and doing this and this and this and this and this. And he said, you were actually the co-director, you know, you were doing as much as the director. Uh, so, nice. so like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. So, so I got that credit because that's what I did, but I didn't really claim it, or I didn't intend to be the director. Uh, and then, right, okay. Uh, I, that film did very well. It went on the festival circuit, so uh, I got some more insight into documentary. But I, I never really had kind of the identity of being a director or a filmmaker. Uh, so I didn't have any plans for doing another film. <laughs> so I was just, it was like, a, <laughs> like a, a, but but I might know that I that I did have the intention of possibly making Time and Water into a film. So mm-hmm. I did interview the Dalai Lama on on camera, and I did interview my grandparents, but uh, nothing really happened at that time. So then I got a phone call from Hökni. Mm-hmm. Which is a legendary Icelandic singer, and uh, yep. so he came out as bipolar uh, after running against maybe about eight years ago, after running against the Reykjavik marathon. That is, he ran the wrong direction in a in a manic episode. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah. he was hospitalized, and uh, and he kind of got stable again, and he decided to confront kind of the gossip. And you know, if he was, people thought he was on drugs or something, and just talking about bipolar disorder. And one of the first of his generation to do that. He inspired an Icelandic mm. woman that is raised in the jungles of Nepal to come out as well. So, mm. so she's raised in uh, in this national park in Nepal, and she owns ten elephants. And, uh, and <laughs> her father okay. was uh, this kind of traveling tycoon and the. In the Larger than life figure, mm. kind of one of the first to make eco tourism in in Nepal uh, when tourism hardly existed there. So he helped change the king's hunting grounds into national parks, into tiger watching instead of mm. and tiger preservation instead of tiger hunting. Yeah, yeah. Instead of killing. So yeah, okay. So uh, so she is bipolar. This woman, she's kind of my age. And her mother actually was also bipolar, and and actually uh, wow. died. Uh, had a very difficult life, kind of uh, her last years, because of this disease. So she decides to yeah. confront the stigma, and step out, bipolar as well, and talk about the issue unashamed. And uh, she decides to throw a mental health awareness concert in Kathmandu. And start and start okay. a mental health awareness campaign and discussion in the past. So uh, okay. she calls Shakti and asks him to come down and sing. Uh, 
and Hafni knows that I've been in this holy cow Himalayan thoughts, thinks that I'm uh, that, that I'm a good would be a good travel mate and to help out make, uh, <laughs> okay. because I had some previous experience in filmmaking, so he calls me, he calls Annie, my co-director, and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, asks us to come basically next week <laughs> to Nepal. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, to record a concert. I was like, you know, why not? I needed to get down there. I, uh, well, I needed it also because of time and water. And uh, and I was yeah. also interested in mental health issues. And I had been writing a bit about uh, suicide in one of my books because a boy mm-hmm. in my, uh, my group of friends, he, he uh, committed suicide. So so I was interested, and this was about a suicide prevention line. So I was, okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll join, I'll join the, 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 the group. And out of this came so much beautiful footage that we were like, okay, well, this is much bigger than a, this is much bigger than a, than a concert, 20 minute, uh, half an hour yeah. concert film. You know, th- this, these are two big epic stories and, and how they talk about their diseases and their kind of experience. It's almost like there's some kind of astronauts. You know, in, in, on the soul, you know, they can go deeper down than most of yeah. us. And they can go higher up than most of us, and uh, and just how they spoke about it, how they explain their lives, how they explain their experiences. Uh, it was just uh, beautiful and and poetic and uh, deep and yeah. sad and funny. So it it contained so much epic element, and then of course we had the elephants. Uh, we had ten elephants to use <laughs> for for our filming, uh, and and when do you do that when you're not doing Lawrence of Arabia or something <laughs> like uh, or or, or Aita <laughs> by Verdi or something like uh, you know like right. so uh, so or a Bollywood film. So we were like, uh, okay, this is something big. So so in 2017, I was just reading my diary. And I was just dying because I had an unfinished documentary on a uh, on a uh, what do you call these uh, storage uh, like a four terabyte storage disk uh, mm-hmm. that was dying. <laughs> so this, uh, I didn't get a connection to this unfinished documentary, and I had time and water in in just scattered all over my computer. Uh, with no coherent thread or anything, so I had yeah. like an unfinished documentary, and and I had a unfinished book that didn't look like anything, uh, just a concept of time and water. And I was like, and I was like going through day yeah. thirty of not writing a single letter, and not advancing any of these ideas uh, further into anything. And I was like, so so I like, what am I doing? I have like mental health awareness campaign in a, in a documentary and 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 the whole yeah. world <laughs> of of time and water uh as a book yeah. project and i was like you know this will never be done this will never finish this is this is just total madness to have this 
these projects uh-huh. on my table, and and they're quite unrelated also because uh, and both yeah, of them are exactly. like, you know quite a handful uh, to dive into. Uh-huh. So you can imagine my joy in 2019, which is about two years later, when I the same day I sent the script to my publisher, uh, like the first big draft of my book. And we sent the first yeah. big rough cut of the movie to a film festival. It was like, and it was like, nice. I felt like a farmer that was like treading on grapes with his toes uh, <laughs> while he had like a a, 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 a barrel full of slaughter <laughs> in his arms. <laughs> so it was like, it was like, like, it was like a full harvest. It was like a, yeah, exactly. It's like all having it once. It's so crazy. Reminding myself of how unbearably big this uh, task was just two years earlier, and I just decided, okay, I'm just gonna finish this both both of these projects. I'm not gonna choose. I'm just gonna get out of this writer's mm-hmm. block by doing too much. So so we went on a <laughs> second Nepal trip to kind of fill up the gaps of the footage and okay. I just started writing full force while the film was being edited nice. and uh, and okay. and so I also produced the film because I didn't have a producer to do the film <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's why it didn't move so nothing happened because I didn't have a yeah. producer that's a lot I didn't have any off. finance so I um, yeah raised like uh, $200,000 Finished the film, finished the book, and uh, mm-hmm. so I could, uh, yeah, go full harvest. Yeah, and now you're now you're done. done. Yes. Book so is now I'm, now published, I'm, movies, now I'm just doing uh, <laughs> yeah. publicity, PR. Yeah, nice. Well, congratulations on getting all of that done. And in terms of like, because we talked about a little bit. Okay, there's mental health in, in Hockney, for instance, in Iceland, and people thinking he was on drugs. Is there a change in when it comes to the perception of mental health here? It has changed dramatically it, for it, people. It, like, is that there's a shift it's happening? It's changed a lot since even even after we started filming in 2016, late 2016. Mm. There's been lots of stuff in television, lots of stuff in the news, in the papers, lots of people opening up. And normalizing basically yeah, mental health to the extent that uh, you know I think people could imagine they could have a you know so so I don't think people are as uh, as prone to uh, prejudice and uh, and uh, and and also just basically the stigma of becoming mentally ill the idea of going to a mental hospital. Uh, is enough to, you know, just like before homosexuals or gay people uh, came out of the closet, that was enough to mm-hmm. drive you into depression. Just the fact of being, being, yeah. not being able to do to be what you are in society. Yeah, not thinking you'll or, be accepted. Or being, yeah, or or or, yeah. or if you uh, came out as what you are, you would be. Uh, Become an outcast, which was, which was just mm-hmm. either from your family or your, uh, yeah, for your friends or job or so you could you know you could lose everything. 
So that in itself was a social right. problem that I think has been reduced quite a lot. Uh, and the same goes awesome. to mental health. That is, you might have lost your job if you had once gone into the mental hospital. You would not be trusted with certain tasks or uh, or uh, or your family, your wife, your spouse, your uh, husband, you know, you know, would not yeah. want to be affiliated with madness. Or so, so, so just yeah. the fact of becoming mentally ill is, uh, is, uh, would be enough to become mentally ill. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, so, yeah, so, right? It's like, if it's not bad yeah, enough yeah. already, so, so, like, <laughs> so, so the fact that yeah. you are diagnosed as crazy could drive you crazy. So, uh, so, so this mm-hmm. we thought was an important thing. So, what we did was, we're portraying these two characters. They uh, both have bipolar disorder, but they're not patients. You know, they're, they're just people, and they're not defined by their illness. They can mm-hmm. talk about their, their situation. They maybe have to keep and struggle to keep balance and keep out of, you know, alcohol or uh, or or uh, intense uh, in- intense situations or. Uh, or they have to get enough sleep and and you know move and you know they just have to keep themselves on the on the line and and not be tempted into going into the mania which is which can be a really kind yeah. of uh, for many can be a tempting situation because it's there's so much energy in that yeah that yeah, comes so out of it it comes out of it yeah so so we tried to talk to a doctor for example but as soon as mm-hmm. he diagnosed them. Then we stopped seeing them as as characters or people. We we started to see patients or mm. or symptoms or or symbols of a disease. So so we mm. just let them kind of define their situations and and what they are and 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 uh, okay. and they tell the stories and we understand it through them. And and, uh, right. and then somebody saw the film and said, "But they're okay. not sick." Yes, <laughs> no, they're not sick. <laughs> they have been sick. Yeah. It's just like when you get, right. if you get COVID, it's not like you're COVID for life. You know, you you had it for a month, but it doesn't define who you are. Yeah. You know, it's not like you have to wear that identity all your life as as your main identity. Yeah. Even, yeah, even though I've been hearing about COVID shaming, I don't know if you've heard about this where people are afraid to interact with those who have had COVID okay. out of fear. This is a fear-based reaction. And I was like, I heard this from someone who had it oh, really? and how their kids had been oh, treated. Really? Yeah. And I was like, oh, whoa, I was not aware of this. So there is a need to kind of address well, okay. uh, I, I that people know. can reintegrate back into society I, I, and not like I, be, people I, be afraid because, of them. I've, I've had the reverse. I, I meet people who say, I'm, uh, I, I've gone through the fire. You can hug me. <laughs> so, so they, they are. They want. They want to catch the disease, so they can. They can hug. Yeah, they're they're immune. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to wrap this up. This has been a great conversation about huge topics, like you mentioned, <laughs> the the world, climate change, global warming, and and mental illness. Yeah. And I kind of end all of my podcast with asking what your favorite Icelandic word or phrase is and the last time 
he might not remember Owen because this is a while ago, but I think it was him Brimme was your word, really? which is the uh, yeah, go, great northern diver. Yeah, I was like, I was like okay, so yeah, yeah. So how has that changed for you if you think about like another Icelandic word or phrase that, that comes I'll, to mind I'll just, that you really I'll just like? Say, uh, I'm good life. I'm good. I'm good, right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, you, you can find it on the Italian website of Iperporia. They they made, <laughs> they made, a, they made, a, made a, they've talked yeah, about they that. Yeah, they put it on Facebook. <laughs> I'm good. Right. <laughs> All right, Andres Nair, this has been a pleasure, like always, and like I mentioned. To all the people, there will be links in the description box. I definitely recommend checking out his books. My favorite book of yours is Love oh, Star, by the way. This is an FYI. <laughs> and yeah, this has been great. Thank you so much for thank your you. time and your insight and the work you're doing as an thank activist. You. Great. Good seeing you again.